right. How's everyone doing? Um, I'm so glad to be here today because it's my first time actually preaching here. Um, I shared in the earlier service how uh, when Nate got the vision, we came and we saw the building. Um, Carmen was there, and we came and we just, we, you know, God gave Nathan this great vision. And I'm just so honored that he would have me to come back and preach. Um, it's something that we've been talking about for a long time, but we just haven't been able to do until now. Um, there's a whole bunch of guys that I wanted to see today uh, who I haven't seen in so long. It seems like we've been gone for a lot longer than a year, right? Huh? Right? And so, um, but I love you guys. And someone, I was coming through there earlier and someone was like, welcome home. And I was like, wow. You know, it really is because if you know our testimony and you know our story, um, Emmaus just carried Michelle and the girls um, while I was away in prison. And if it wasn't for Emmaus, um, I'm not sure how that story, I'm sure we would have had still a great ending to that to that chapter I'm sure it would have went well because the Lord you know loves us so much but I I truly believe that if it wasn't for Emmaus I've seen what happens to families that don't have that that kind of support and families that don't have a, a a strong church connection and it doesn't go well for them and so we have so much to be thankful for here there's so so many roots here at Emmaus and it's just a privilege to come back and be able to share this word with you guys. So, speaking of prison, let me share a quick milestone with you guys that I forgot to share in the first service. Um, on Friday, I was in Stockton at the uh, California Youth Authority. Does anybody know what that is? So, California Youth Authority is, it's not juvenile hall. It is, um, it is actually prison for young men. So, the young men who go to this particular one I was at, um, they're as young as 13, and then when they turn, they can stay there till they're 25, and then when they hit 25, um, they call it getting maxed out, and then they get sent to the, the adult prison. But there's literally uh, 13, 14, and 15-year-olds in there who have life sentences. And obviously, they can't stay at juvenile hall because, you know, like a Placer County juvenile hall is a temporary while you're going through your court case. But once you're sentenced, if you're a minor and you receive a long time, they, they send you to California Youth Authority. So uh, I was privileged to be the keynote speaker at their graduation. There's a, there's a high school at the prison, and 15 young men graduated on Friday uh, from the high school and received their diplomas, and, and they've all made decisions to really turn their lives around. And I got to go there and speak. But for me, it was, it was a huge milestone because th- this, is, this is so crazy how God brings everything full circle when I was 16 years old, um, I, was, I was heavily involved in ministry. And at, someone in my life saw that I had a gift to deliver the word. And they saw that early on, 16 years old. So you know what he said? He said, I'm going to take you to this prison in Stockton. And I want you to come and talk to these young men. This is when I was 16. So he took me to that same prison, and I stood on the same stage I think that was 27, I'm bad at math. I think that was 27 years ago, okay? And so this is the first time going back to speak at a prison, right? This is the first time going to a prison as a, as a visitor and not a guest. Um, and as I was driving in, I, I thought to myself, well, I'm ready for this. You know, I normally, I normally don't get too nervous when I go and speak somewhere. 
But as soon as I started driving into the, the compound, you know, there's a dirt road that leads to the gate. And I, and I saw the, the wire, the razor wire, and I saw the, the tower. Um, my blood pressure shot up. My hands were sweaty. My heart started beating. And I was like, oh, God, you know, am I really going to be able to do this? Because, you know, I was, I, I was, I was re-traumatized all over again of the experience of actually going in. And, um, and so the Lord brought me, gave me the opportunity, brought me back to this same prison that I was at 27 years ago. And I remember the day that I, that I spoke there when I was 16, the, the, the God's hand was all over it and the anointing of God was just present in that place. So many young men gave their lives to God that day. And when I, you know, I finally, I get to the, I get to the, um, what do they call it? The control center where they check people in. And it started bad off the get go because I didn't get the memo and I wore jeans and so there's a rule. It's an old rule because no one wears jeans. No, no inmates there wear jeans. They wear khakis. But it's an old rule that they haven't taken out of the system that you can't wear denim at a California prison. So I'm, I'm wearing denim. And, and I have like a blazer, you know, like a collared shirt, blazer, denim, dress shoes. You know the look. Nathan does it all the time. Uh, that's, not, that's not normally my look. But I, I said to myself, I, I better look okay. Because if I went how I normally dress, they probably would have cuff me up right on the spot. So I get there and they're like, hey, you're wearing jeans. You can't come in. And then my paperwork didn't make it to the, to the guard shack. So they didn't know who I was. The guy that brought me on called in sick that day. So they're like, we don't, we have no clue who you are. And I'm like, I'm the keynote speaker for the graduation. I promise. Right. Cause they look like they want to, like I'm up to no good. And so they come out, they finally let me in. And right before I go in, they're like, do you have a phone on you? And I said, oh, yeah, actually, I do. And they're like, well, you got to leave it in your car. And as I'm walking back to my car, I'm like, oh, gosh, all my notes are on my phone. And so I'm just like, something's working against me here, right? All my notes are in my phone, so I'm walking back to my car to put my phone away. And I'm talking to God, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but I have a couple of things on my mind, and that's it. And this is like a monumental moment for these young men. So I finally get in, and I stood on that same stage that I stood on almost 30 years ago, and the same anointing, the same, it almost seemed like God left an angel there that said, I've been waiting for you to come back. And the Spirit of God just dropped so heavy on that place, just like it did back then, and how God brings everything full circle to me, it, it still baffles me to this day, you know, and, and when I stood on that stage, I actually felt the presence of God, like, just running through my body. It was like an, it was, it was an, like an electricity just running through, and it was just, it was just amazing, you guys, and for me, you know, I told the young men, I know this is a milestone for them, but I told them, this is a milestone for me, and I just love how God knows, and you know, often I always say that God's will doesn't always make sense to our senses, but he knows. You know, when we are questioning what's going on, he knows. And so I just, I, I wanted to share that with you guys because you guys are like my family. And I just wanted you to know that was my first one. And I got so many offers to go speak at prisons now. Uh, and, and I really believe that the Lord's going to use that to just inspire. You know, I'm, right now I'm only going to the, the juvenile prisons. Um, because I feel like that's where my heart is. Obviously, I'm a youth pastor, but I, I feel that's where my heart is. And, and, and these men, 
These young men um, don't know what it's like to have a father. They don't know what it's like to, to be affirmed and to be validated. They don't know what it's like to be held by another grown man. You know, I, 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 I hugged a kid, 16-year-old kid, and, and, and he came to me and he said, that's the first time I've ever been hugged by, by a grown man before. You know, and, you know, at 16, that's, that's, that's extremely heartbreaking that, you're, you know, someone hasn't wrapped you in their arms because they need it too. And that's kind of like what's leading me into this message, right? We're talking about a father's heart today. And as uh, some of you may or may not know, we just had a daughter that graduated from boot camp. Uh, she went to the Navy. I know Ron Oates was happy about that. Um, she actually asked me if she could go to the Marine Corps, and I said, I, I can't do that to you. I love you too much. <laughs> I let let's talk about the Navy. So she went to the Navy, and she graduated from boot camp. So Michelle and I went out there to visit and to watch her graduate, and it was just, it was an amazing moment, you know, just watching her march in. You know, we just, you know, the tears in our eyes just welled up with pride and just all, all those emotions. You know, you parents, you guys know what I'm talking about. The, the young ones in here, you're just like, hey, this guy's crazy. He is crazy. Um, and so we, she, she comes in, and, and, and we have this great moment with her. And Michelle and I had booked a hotel for the weekend because we thought we were actually going to get her for the entire weekend. And it turns out that when we finally connected, she comes to us and she says, hey, I have to be back tonight. And, you know, we were really looking forward to just spending that time with her and, and just having that communion with her. And my wife even said, I just want to cuddle with her, you know, in the hotel. I want to cuddle with her and, um, you know, just let her kind of just be my baby again. And so when she told us that, um, it, was, it was the most disappointing thing that's happened to me this year. Like, I was, I, I was filled with anger. I was filled with frustration. But... I, but my heart was just broken because I was like, man, we made all these plans, and now we have to give her back in six hours. I think we had seven hours with her maybe. And, of course, she wanted to go get a cell phone, so that killed like two hours right there, of course, teenager. But it was so disappointing, you guys. I was so heartbroken. When she came to get – when she came – her ride came to pick her up from the hotel, um, Myself and Michelle, we went out there, and we just kind of watched her drive off. And uh, I, I know I cried. I didn't even want to look at my wife because she was probably crying, and it would have made me cry more. But it brought me back to, um, and, and, you know, my sisters are in the back, so you guys will kind of understand this. But it brought me back to a place in my life over the last 20 years where my father has had to say goodbye to me. And, and we've had several goodbyes. Um, and my father, when he would say goodbye to me, um, I remember he, he would step out in the front porch and we'd hug and he'd say bye. And then, I would, and then I'd get in my car and drive off. And our house had a perfect view of the corner. So like he could, he could see me making a left turn to go to the freeway. And then if I looked in my rearview mirror at the right time, I could still see him. And as a young man, I never understood. Like he would stand there at the porch Man, he would stand there at the porch and he would weep. And as a young man, I would say to myself, the old man is cracked. He's done. He's like, what's wrong with him? I'm coming right back. But he would stand there and weep. And he, and, and he wouldn't, I imagine that he wouldn't go back inside the house until the car, until he couldn't see me anymore. 
And as a young man, young people, if you're in here, you won't really appreciate that until you have to say goodbye. And so God gave me a perfect picture when we saw Angie leaving, and he gave me an awesome reminder of what it means to have a father's heart. And then this message just came into my heart because I don't know that my heart's been that broken before. And, and my dad has actually said goodbye to me at least four times in my life where neither he or I knew if we would ever see each other again. And that's a lot of times to say goodbye to someone. He didn't know if I was going to be dead or alive. Four times. And, uh, and I never got it. And so the Lord placed this scripture in my heart and he placed this word, the story of the prodigal son, and so I'm going to run through the story real quick, and then I'm going to give you guys a little cultural context, and then we're going to, we're going to I promise this message is going to be fun. I promise. Right now, it it's, doesn't seem so fun, right? But this is what God does. So here's Jesus in Luke 15. He says, there was once a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share, give me my share of the property, or some translations, it's the inheritance. Give me my share of the inheritance that is coming to me. And so the man divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered, for the young people, squandered means he wasted. He squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate out of. And no one gave him anything. So this guy, like, nobody wanted to help this dude because he probably looked so messed up. All right? We have a huge recovery community up there at our church in Auburn. So I see people when they first come into to recovery, like their last sober day. I, I'm, sometimes I look at some people, I'm like, I don't even know how you're standing because they're just so messed up from the meth or the heroin or whatever they've been on. So this dude is so messed up that nobody wants to help him, and he's eating out of the same pods that pigs eat out of. Verse 17, but he comes to himself, and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise. He's talking to himself now. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way away, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran. I want you to remember that the father runs, and he embraced his son, and he kisses him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. But the father says to the servants, quickly, Bring him a robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And they brought out the fattened calf and they killed it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found and they began to party. They began to have a big celebration. Now the older son was in the field and he comes back from the field and they're having this big party at the house. He sees the barbecue smoke, you know, the pinatas, whatever. It's going down. He gets home. He's like, hey, what's going on? He sends one of the servants to find out. Verse 27, the servant comes back and he says, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safely and sound. But he was angry. The older son was angry. 
And he says to the father, look, all these years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never even gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who devoured all your money on prostitutes, you kill the fattest calf for him. And the father says to the older son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. So the father's extremely happy. The younger son who was messed up, he's real happy. And the older son is really mad. So do you guys want to see what this looks like? I'm going to show you guys what this looks like. This is going to get, now it's going to get fun. I should have just had this on from the beginning, huh? Right, Josh? got a rich dad who he totally takes for granted and is like I need my money right and he's probably on his he's probably on his way to Vegas right now <laughs> but in order for us to really understand this story and what Jesus was attempting to Jesus when Jesus told this parable it made absolutely no sense to the people and what Jesus was really trying to do with this story was really psych people out but what we know here is that the father gives the son three things when the son comes back. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about. So first of all, we know that God has already revealed his name to us. Okay, in Exodus 3.14, when God sends Moses out, okay, and Moses says, God says, go tell the people this. And Moses says, well, when they ask me who sent me, what do you want me to say? God tells Moses his name. And we don't tell people our names unless we're trying to have a conversation, right? Or unless we're trying to have a relationship. Right, And I used this analogy last service. Ladies, when your husband first met you, 
and he came and asked you your name and probably your number, if you had no interest, you wouldn't have gave it to him probably, right? And so when we give people our name, we want them to know, know our name so that we can talk. So God's already said, I want to talk. I want a relationship. And now Jesus is using this story to reveal God's heart. So we know his name. Now we need to know his heart so that we can learn to be good shepherds and good fathers. And the first thing he gives the son is a robe, okay? The son comes back in the story. Remember I was reading, the son comes back. First thing does, the father gives him a robe. The robe signifies identity. Every tribe, every family had their own color, their own pattern, even what I'm wearing now. Most Palestinians would identify with this black and white, whereas if it was red and white, it would be someone from Jordan or Yemen or some, somewhere like that. So what you wear and what people wore in those times was very significant to who they were and where they came from and what they believed. So the father puts on the robe, number one, to give the son back his identity. And the best way I can put it is by the father putting on the robe, it's like the son coming back, the father gives him a, a fresh jersey, and he says, you're back on the team, all right? You're, you're back on the squad. Here's, here's your jersey, identity. Then he gives him a ring. The ring represents authority. It represents power. And most importantly, it represents affection. Just think back to, to the day you got married, for those of you that are married. And you exchange those vows, and you put a ring on his hand, her hand, and, and it's a symbol of your affection. So the father gives him back identity. The father gives him back his authority, his power, and lets him know, son, I love you. Gives him the affection. And lastly, the father gives him shoes or sandals. The, sag the sandals signified that the son was not a servant. Servants wore no sandals, and when the father refused to let his son be a mere servant, this, this is what he did. He said, I'm going to give you shoes so that you understand that there's absolutely no way that you will be a servant in this house. You're going to wear shoes because you've been given back all authority, all power, all identity, all affection. You've been completely redeemed. And so the father is very strategic as far as what gifts he gives the son. And Jesus is telling this story because to the people who were listening to this story back in those days, they have no idea. And they're just, they're looking at Jesus and like, this is crazy. And so I always share this story. A friend of mine, a guy who was actually a professor of mine at William Jessup, he goes to, to Lebanon. And on national television, He's asked a question, and he begins to tell the story, the parable of the prodigal son. And so now you got to understand, he's telling this story to a group of Muslims who were there and to, about, and to a whole bunch of Muslims across the Middle East who watched this channel. And so he, he goes on to say, he's like, hey, there was once this rich patriarch just about 10 miles from here, because they were right near the Israeli border in Lebanon. He said, just about 10 miles from here, there was a rich patriarch. And, the, and he had two sons. And the youngest son came and asked his father for the inheritance. And as soon as he said that, the guy holding the camera was just like, what did you just say? Because for the younger son to ask his father for the inheritance in that day and time was was basically the youngest son wishing death upon his father. 
It was basically him saying, I wish you were dead so I could get my money. It was like if your husband uh, had a life insurance policy and you began to plot his death so that you, can, you could get cash out. It was that equivalent. So as soon as he said the youngest son came and asked for the inheritance, these Muslim guys were just like, there's no way that could happen. And so my friend continues with the story, and he says, well, guess what? The father gives him the money. Now they're really like, what's going on here? Then he says, the son takes the money, and he leaves, and he spends all the money on wild living. And then he comes to a point in his life where there's a famine in the land. He's all out of money, and he's so broke that he hires himself out to a guy who's herding pigs, and now he's eating with pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish culture or the Muslim culture, how much do they have to do with pigs? Absolutely zero. You're cursed. You touch a pig, you look at a pig, you eat pig, you're cursed. That's both cultures. So now these guys, these, the, the camera guy and the light, the guy holding the light and the guy holding the microphone's like, he's so confused. Like, he wants to say something, but he doesn't know what to say because he's like, this makes, this story is wild. It's crazy because these things are unheard of. They were unheard of. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing right now. The people who were listening to this parable, they were beside themselves. But Jesus is like, oh, I got them right where I want them. So then he goes on and he says, so the son realizes that he can go back and live as a servant. So he comes back and the father must have been waiting for him because the father sees him from afar and then the father runs to greet him. And believe it or not, this part of the story was the most appalling part of the entire story to these guys. He said they wanted, at that point when he said the man ran, they wanted to stop filming. They actually, I, I think he was afraid for his life at that point because Middle Eastern men do not run. They do not run, and patriarchs do not run for anyone, because in order for a Middle Eastern man to run, he has to hike up his garb and expose his legs, and for a Middle Eastern man to expose his legs is an absolute unthinkable curse. It is, you just, you don't do that. And so Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he said the father saw the son and he ran. Because the listeners of that time were just like, no way. This, is, uh, this story is false. I don't believe it. There's no way this man exposed his legs and ran to his son, to this little brat. You guys saw the brat, right? And so, so Carl says he runs out and, he's, and he greets the son and his arms are up, and the cameraman's like, yes, his arms are up because he has a knife, and he stabs him in the chest. <laughs> and Carl's like, no, he doesn't stab him in the chest because, of course, in this day and age, the, the culture of this time demanded the death of that, of that youngest son. I don't know how many of you guys knew that. The, the youngest son brought shame and dishonor to the family. And the tribal code of that time that predates Jesus, predates Islam, said that if someone brings dishonor to the family, then the oldest son, who is called the Wali, the oldest son has every right to kill the younger son. And so now you can understand why the oldest son was so mad. 
And he refused to go into the party because from a young boy, he's been told, you're the protector of this family. If somebody wants to date one of your sisters, they got to come talk to you. If someone says something bad about your mom, they got to come talk to you. If someone dishonors the family name, whether they're related to you or not, you have to take care of it. And the code required blood. The code required blood. The father at that point should have banished the son or killed him. And the law said that if the father didn't do that, then the father should be banished or killed by the older son. So you can see his predicament now. He's like, my dad didn't let me kill my brother, and now the law demands that I kill my father. So he's in a situation here, and these Muslim guys that are listening to the story, they're like, yes, he killed him. No, he didn't kill him. He brought him into the village. Oh, yes, he brought him into the village. What a smart father. He puts those gifts on him, and he brought him into the village so he can kill him in front of all the village so they can restore the family name. And, and, and he says, no, he didn't do that. He brought him into the village, and he killed the fattest calf, and they threw a big party. And these guys are just like, we're done. We're done. Put, put the microphone down. I mean, my buddy's like, I, I thought it was going to be it for me because this was so offensive to them. Jesus tells this story so that we can see that the father's love for this boy was so powerful that the father did not care that his legs were showing, that he was exposing and dishonoring his family name. He didn't care about all that. His son was dead and now he was alive. Do you guys want to see what that looks like? All right. Stand with me. So the camera guys, the camera guys are like, what kind of story is this? We need that boy's blood. 
They asked Carl, what kind of God do you serve? And his response was this. He said, we serve a God that throws parties when sinners come home. And those guys, those guys were so confused by that. And I know that even though they didn't say it out loud in their hearts, they were like, I want that. I need that. I need a father who's willing to love me so much that his love transcends culture. His love transcends mockery, shame, all that. And to lay his life down for me. So pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you are a good father. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the wisdom and the grace just to try to understand the depth of your love for us. I pray for the fathers in here that you would show them how to have a father's heart. I pray for the fatherless who don't know that they would learn to embrace you as their father and that they would receive your unconditional love. And for those that have heard this message today, that they would truly understand that there is nothing more important than your love for us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We, we love you today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.